0: Hello, future billionaires! Welcome back to another exciting episode of the podcast. We have a returning guest, Parker Webb, who is the CEO of FTW Investments, talking again about retail real estate. So this is an don't asset class. tune out just because he said retail. Okay, <laughs> this is this is when there's a lot to not
1: like about real estate in today's environment.
0: This is an area you definitely want to pay attention to. Yeah. So we hit all the big topics. One, what's driving this? Uh, you know, growth in retail and the sector, uh, what does it look like from an investment standpoint and how could it potentially uh, perform in a recession? So we talk about all that and more in this episode. Hope you enjoy. This is the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast where we uncover the alternative investments and strategies that billionaires use to grow wealth. The tools and tactics you'll learn from this podcast will make you a better investor and help you build legacy wealth. Join us as we dive into the world of alternative investments, uncover strategies of the ultra wealthy, discuss economics, and interview successful investors. Looking for passive investments done for you? With Aspen Funds, we help accredited investors that are looking for higher yields and diversification from the stock market. As a passive investor, we do all the work for you. Making sure your money is working hard for you in alternative investments. In fact, our team invests alongside you in every deal, so our interests are aligned. We focus on macro driven alternative investments, so your portfolio is best positioned for this economic environment. Get started and download your free economic report today. Welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. I'm your co host, Ben Frazier, joined by fellow co host, Bob Frazier. And today we have a guest, <clears throat> Parker Webb of FTW Investments, and we want to bring Parker back on. We had had him on uh, earlier this year, and uh, talking a lot about retail real estate. So this is something we've talked you know about off and on this whole year, and you know, finding opportunities um, in this asset class, and it's something that you know is a little bit contrarian, you know, against some of the headline narrative that you may see uh, from time to time of retail is dead, right um, mm-hmm but uh the the data is contrary to that and uh, so we want to bring you back on because this is something we're still paying attention to we're still tracking um you're obviously you know in the nitty-gritty of this asset class finding the deals underwriting them all the time this is your background right and Mm -hmm. we want to bring you back on just one to kind of share again what's going on in retail you know why why is it still a good place to be looking uh relative to other asset classes they're really looking at you know with Potential recession looming next year. How does this impact the asset class? So let's kind of start at the beginning for those that maybe didn't hear the first episode. You know what makes retail real estate attractive right now?
1: And maybe yeah, before absolutely. we before he jumps in, you know, tell us your your background a little bit yeah. because you're kind of you're kind of a retail expert. You've done quite a bit of retail, so yeah,
2: yeah, hundred percent. So uh, you know, at FTW Investments, we're, we are across um, really all major property types and and invest across the spectrum. But prior to this uh the majority of my career I spent in the retail space doing both retail investment sales retail leasing uh, as well as uh working on the the private equity side with another group uh here in in, in Missouri out of St. Louis uh where we were buying Walmart shadow anchored shopping centers and so um you know a lot of time spent on developing uh redeveloping and uh really every gamut of of the retail side I've been on and largely surrounding around um neighborhood centers Uh, shadow anchored, meaning that we are, you know, buying a strip center that is adjacent to a big box, but we're not buying the big box. Um, Or it could be a grocery uh, shadow. So we're next to the grocery, but we're not buying the grocery. Um, So a lot of experience across the board there. And I'll say though, those areas that uh, we just talked about are really the areas, you know, have shown to be resilient throughout um, COVID, throughout, you know, prior recessions, um, and the areas, you know, we're interested in the retail space today are really are kind of in those same veins, right? So we're talking about unanchored neighborhood centers. We're talking about um, grocery anchored in some instances. We really like grocery shadow anchored. So grocery is going to drive traffic, drive people, but we don't have to pay for the grocery credit or pay for that cap rate. And uh, and, and sort of the same. So a lot of what we're looking at, again, neighborhood centers, strip centers, uh and shadow anchored type so, of property. So the
1: shadow the shadow anchor, just to just to make it simplify here. So, you know, if you're if you're anchored by a grocery store, you're buying a grocery store with a strip mall, your your cap rates are lower, meaning your returns are lower because you're paying for this grocery store. What you like is to buy next door to the grocery store. You're not paying the the low cap rates for the grocery store. You're you're getting a higher cap rate, higher returns, higher cash on cash returns. Um without and you get the traffic of the grocery store without having to pay for the grocery store, correct?
2: That's exactly right. Gotcha. So we don't have to pay for the grocery store, we don't have to pay for their credit, but their credit is still enhancing the property that's ultimately driving exactly. traffic to exactly. what we're buying.
1: So so, so you mentioned this sort through COVID, which we kind of covered last time, and it it's kind of a shocker, right? Um and especially the stuff that we're looking at. I mean, obviously. You know, we're we're not talking when you think retail. Retail is a very big class, right? You're talking about you know, it could be grocery stores, could be Walmart. You're talking about the the the, the shadow anchored or the neighborhood center. These are the very small little strip malls that have the nail salon, the dog groomer, the bar, the the you know uh, you know that those kind of things, right? And and hundred percent. And they did super well, right? Through mm-hmm. COVID, how did they do through the 2008 recession, 2008-2009?
2: So mainly this is where, you know, we've seen really over the last 20 years when you look at the, the data across the board, your large regional malls, your power centers, those that are the, the large anchored, Right. those were the ones that were the worst affected. They got creamed, didn't was, they? Yeah. They got creamed. Those tenants were made by these large corporations just couldn't keep up with the e-commerce, couldn't keep up with some of the recessionary stuff. And ultimately at the end of the day, there's just a lot of competition in that space, right? But the stuff that we're talking about is the stuff that has done well, right? Liquor stores that are often in these neighborhood centers, perform well, regardless of whether or not we're in a recession. Uh, those liquor stores still produce sales at a pretty high rate and frankly, often higher during a recession <laughs> otherwise. And so, yeah, and so what we've seen is that these are these are resilient places, right? It's like, no matter how bad the economy is going, maybe you go a little bit longer between haircuts or you're still getting haircuts. You're still going, you know, swinging through the liquor store. You're still having meetings at a coffee shop or a bar and all of those places. And so those are the places that that we really like. Have been resilient. Have shown the data has shown that they are resilient, and they're the places that, frankly, a lot of us frequent um, and don't think of it. It's, it's almost like more neighborhood commercial too, because you get this right. office component to it, right? You get the mm. the insurance person, the tax preparer, the attorney, um, you know, all kinds of different folks that might fall under more of a typical office type of use, but want that kind of retail orientation and retail approach to their consumer.
1: And this is hyper local, right? I mean, hyper local. This is stuff no one's going to drive further than. Maybe what two miles or something, you know, to Correct, get their yeah. haircut or their, their liquor store. But there's a lot. That's the way you want to go. You want the six pack. You need to get your haircut. You're just gonna go local on the way home. Yeah, and it's stuff that people do no matter what their their pocketbook is saying. Um,
2: so hyper local, right? Hyper local, hyper local. And what we've seen so in the data, <laughs> what we've seen is like during the basically the onset of onset of COVID when. You know, the stay-at-home order impacted everybody, regardless, right? I mean, that was that was an impact. So what we saw was about a 17% drop in sales during that initial period when we had basically a full lockdown, right? Which has immediately rebounded, and we're now showing at a 13% peak, almost 14% peak above pre-COVID levels. And this, is, out of this is neighborhood world. centers? Yes, that's correct.
1: So so we yeah. did see them get impacted, but it really wasn't that deep. And now right. it's rebounded, you know, they, yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly, they got impacted. I think it was largely around you. Know, uh, it was people not being able to literally, literally not being able to leave their houses. There was a government or yeah. <laughs> and as so, soon as that was lifted, people were able to shop and get back to business.
1: So we're really the more we look at this, the more we really love the space, um, especially the the small neighborhood centers. We really love it, um, and it's kind of it's kind of anti. Uh, it's not obvious, I guess, right. I mean, then the cap rates are high, meaning your cash and cash returns are high. These things cash flow like crazy. And as mm-hmm. opposed to a lot of real estate right now, you know, for example, multifamily is you know kind of the uh, like the gold standard for commercial real estate because everyone needs a place to live but the, but on the other hand, the cap rates have just been driven to the floor. They're super expensive, makes places mm-hmm. super expensive and cash flow is super low. and we're still seeing right now cap rates below debt rates. So Mm -hmm. which means leverage is a negative thing. You, you, you know, and so who wants to buy that stuff right now? You know, you still have the recession risk, but boy, is it pricey. On the other hand, I mean, you look in the the spectrum of real estate. We love the retail. It's still easy to be bullish on because the cap rates, I mean, we're seeing cap rates, eight, nine percent cap rates, meaning cash on cash returns, eight to nine percent. That's nuts. That's Mm -hmm. nuts. I mean, that's, you know, that's a great return and that's apart from appreciation value, right?
2: hundred percent. I think, you know, the other thing too, that we have to kind of be aware of there, right. Is like when, when people have looked at, let's talk about market kind of trends prior, right. So, um, you know, self-storage, right. was largely a mom-and-pop operation, then mm-hmm. multi the mobile home parks were largely a mom-pop operation and those have institutionalized over the years, mm-hmm. right? Well, today these neighborhood centers are still about three to 5% institutionally owned. So we're talking wow. about, largely a hugely uh-huh. unsophisticated base. And what that means is a lot of different things. One, you know, we can typically get better cap rates, right? So we're talking about cap rates in the seven to 9%. But two, because of that level of unsophistication, the fact that a lot of the ownership isn't what we would call professional operators, we have the ability to immediately go in and do things like, you There's know, a lot of room for upside. Websites, Yeah. Yep, lease rates, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so we're talking about buying into something that's seven to nine that within two to three years is a cap rate of 10 to 15 and that's really where there's a lot of opportunity. What
1: what have, what have we seen historically with cap rates? Cause it's just, it's still a little befuddling to me why this stuff is on sale. It must be super hated. My, here's something that has shown a lot of resilience mm-hmm. through various economic times. And, you know, and, and I mean, it is pretty boring. Maybe that's why, but why this, why this incredible discount
2: on these? Yeah, boxes? oh, I mean, let's say shout out to Casey Conway at uh, the Red Shoe Economist, you know, the, also works with CCIM as our chief economist. And you know, what's it's interesting, and I think what, what we're benefiting from as a buyer of this product today is that there's a dislocation between the property market and the capital market. And what I mean by that is that the property market is performing high, right? Vacancies are super low in this product, 6%, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, uh, rate rental rates are increasing rapidly at this type of product, but we're still seeing these high cap rates and why? And there's basically a disconnect between capital markets and the property market. The property market's performing well, but the capital market is still discounting them on price. And why? Well, what they're doing is they're looking at retail data as a macro. And if you look at retail data as a macro or on an right. average, right, you see this decline. And, but the issue is all that decline happens to be in those sub segments, right? right. So it happens to be regional malls and power centers. But if you, you look so, at the
1: niche of this neighborhood, small neighborhood center, they just kill it. And so it's, just it's the niche, but they're getting painted with the broad brush of retail, global retail and which exactly is-
2: it's like if you put put one foot in a bucket of ice and the other foot in a bucket of boiling water on <laughs> average you're about 100 degrees but your feet are frozen and burning right so <laughs> i mean it,
0: to add to that too you look at kind of this this meta narrative of you know re- brick and mortar retail is dead because of e-commerce and that that's been the trend for the past 15 20 years right as e-commerce has been the biggest growth on the whole of the retail sector But what we're seeing is a slowdown, and we saw an initial peak at the beginning of COVID, right? But Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of normalizes now, seeming to plateau. And I think one of the more recent stats I've seen that was shared either by Marcus Milchap or um, another large firm was that the year-over-year growth in uh, brick-and-mortar actually eclipsed e-commerce growth for the first time in a while. Sales growth is actually growing faster in brick-and-mortar retail, retail sales, retail sales uh, than
1: the consumer level. Yeah, interesting.
2: And that's correct on a dollar for dollar basis. And so web penetration is actually declining, mm-hmm. um, meaning that you know dollar per dollar of sales, you're actually seeing a change. And we still think, for the record, we're still bullish on the e-commerce growth. We still think e-commerce is going to continue to grow. Yeah. Right. But even if you extrapolate that out, and even if e-commerce got a majority of the retail sales growth, that doesn't stop from retail sales in the bricks and mortar, still from growing something like 6% annually yeah. as it's, it's continuing yeah. to increase.
1: So, so, I mean, we
2: saw this huge
1: spike in e-commerce through COVID. And so now it's been, it's been going down. Um, but that's really, if you look at the long trend, it's up. So I, it really depends on what, I'd like to see the data, but it really depends on what time frame you look at. I mean, e-commerce is not dead, uh, but it's certainly retrenching back, it's normalizing back to historical patterns. But let's right. let's talk about the e-commerce risk of these neighborhood centers because that's the other thing I love about it. I mean, you're not going to send your dog to get groomed at Amazon, right? <laughs> right. And and you're you're you know you're not going to buy your six pack at Amazon generally. I mean, you know we're not seeing that. You're not going to get your nails done at Amazon. There's just not a lot of risk. There's a lot of things that can't be e-commerce, right? You can't get your hair cut at Amazon. I mean, they're probably trying to right. figure out a way to do that. But, <laughs> exactly. You know, you know, there's, it just, those things don't happen. So there's a lot of these hyper-local services that are just going to be done by human beings forever. And there's no e-commerce risk there. And the e-commerce risk that, that there, there, there is, has already been done. So it's mm-hmm. kind of post-risk you know am i missing something
2: no i think you're spot on i think where we're, at, we're i think the level of disruption that we're going to see from e-commerce on a go forward basis is minimal compared to what it was right yeah. um it's easy to get on and, and buy something online that you're you know a book or something like that that you don't need to go to a physical store for but you can't get a haircut online you can't get your dog room online you can't you know yeah you can't get your liquor online all there's some apps that do that, but often those apps that are doing that, someone's driving to a neighborhood center, <laughs> right. and hauling that way. right? So, you know, it, it's it's still I think fairly resilient to a lot of that. I think you know, and even where you're seeing the changes happen, and what's been interesting is even the power centers and such have have benefited from um, you know this kind of resurgence of the brick and mortar. What we're seeing is people want to, myself included, because I'm six foot three, two hundred fifty pounds, and I. Have to try on six different kinds of clothes to figure out what fits me, right? I don't want to order that stuff online. I want to walk into a store and figure it out. I want to, I'm a size 13 shoe, but sometimes that's a size 12 or 14, depending on the manufacturer, right? And so we're seeing a lot of that happen where a lot of people are wanting to actually go into a physical location and try that stuff on. So I think retail as a whole is gonna continue to grow in person. And I think the other big piece that we're seeing is a lot of this omni-channel stuff that we're seeing is that the retailers need a physical location for returns more than anything else because that customer service and that return program is a huge component of their entire logistics atmosphere. So while we're still focused on the neighborhood centers and that's the stuff that we like because it is the most e-commerce resistant, I think even those disrupted by e-commerce are going to see more of a resurgence of sales and activity in their physical locations.
0: Well, I think it's a great case in point. You know, Amazon, the biggest e-commerce retailer, bought Whole Foods, a brick and mortar <clears throat> grocery, right? And that was a key part of their strategy to kind of to have this omni-channel, this hybrid approach, which we're seeing a lot of other bigger e-commerce in, you know, brick and mortar that are kind of having this, this hybrid, right? Where you want to have yep. a brick and mortar presence because you still need that for a lot of things like logistics, like you're saying, but now optimizing to the e-commerce as well. And- and that's kind of almost been like a reversion back to the mean of, you know, the, yep. the, it seems like the sweet spot is, is somewhere on that
2: hybrid, but. Dorby Parker is an example of that as well. Right. So okay. they were originally full online retailer and they now have 178 locations. Right. And they said, no, we're an online business. Okay. Well brand presence and the logistics and we're losing money on not being able to do eye exams for all those reasons. They said, we got open source.
0: Yeah. It's it's yeah. So talk about right now, where are we, um, where are we at, you know, as we're kind of, as we're, Having this conversation, it's you know beginning of December, um, going into twenty twenty three, and a lot of recession fears, a lot of uh, turbulence in the markets. You know, stock markets down twenty five percent, and a lot of fear that hey, you know, we have high inflation, you know, Feds having high interest rates, um, we're seeing maybe some potential slowdown in the economy. How how does retail fare through that? Right, we obviously saw a you know a recent recession uh, through covid but that was pretty unique um you know but so uh, what's kind of your perspective what's your thesis on uh, why why does retail you know make sense even in a potential recession scenario
2: yeah i think you know again it comes to what it is right that the service that they're providing more than anything right so we're talking about you know, and we've seen this right so the, the sales really across neighborhood retail. If you kinda of look at the sales, maybe you lose some on some amenities, but liquor might pick up, et cetera. And so sales across the board on neighborhood centers, while we would expect them to be impacted if people have us walking around money, the things that we're talking about are things that they're gonna to have to do, right? They're gonna to have to go file their taxes. None of us wanted we all got to go do it, right? So these places are still gonna get, you know, a clientele to walk through and file their taxes. They're still going to come through and, and you know, buy, you know, their you know, I like to say that we drink when we're happy and we drink when we're sad. And usually we're one of those two things. And so we, uh, you know, liquor stores continue to have, have that going, your, your salons and such, right. It's like, we're all, you know, maybe we'll let our hair grow a little bit out in COVID, but we're all getting haircuts, right? And even when the market declines again, maybe you were every six weeks instead of every four weeks, but we're still going to go. We're still going to get haircuts. We still have business conduct. We still have to go be members of society. And so there's certain things that we just have to do. So what we're seeing across the board actually is a lot of, activity amongst tenants in the retail space. And so retailers are actually expanding pretty rapidly, and we're seeing a lot fewer uh, retractions on square footages and foot, pra- foot plates. Uh, we're seeing a lot of expansions in terms of <laughs> both the floor plate as well as new store locations. And uh, in the, in the first time in a long time, actually, since about 1994, we're seeing more stores open than close. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of activity despite the coming you know, potential headwinds if there is a recession that we're expecting, right? Despite that, we're seeing folks be more bullish on expanding this piece of their entire distribution network, uh, this piece of their company, and making sure that they're get, being front of mind. The other thing, too, is even in a recession, regardless of whether or not, you know, again, people have us walking around money, you still need to have brand presence and be you know be top of mind. You need to be in a location where people are going to see you and think about you. And so these locations that are incredibly convenient and incredibly visible are going to fare uh, much better than locations that, that may not be, and you don't really get. You know, unless you're doing a Google search, you're not going to get a whole lot of exposure online without paying for a lot of advertising. But someone can always try to buy a piece of property and see your sign.
0: And if we look at you know snapshot of today, you mentioned it earlier. You know, vacancy is you know very very low relative to to history, and because of that, um, we're still seeing a strong consumer. Right? I mean, we just had Black Friday, and it was a lot stronger than expectations. Right? And uh, there's been recent reports of a lot of retailers who are ramping up for the holiday season uh, to prepare for what they expect to be a strong consumer. Maybe maybe that kind of slows down a little bit as you know, go into next year. But for looking at right now, there's just not a whole lot of vacancy. There's not a whole lot of uh, you know available space anyway, and it's one that's driving up lease rates. But it's also a you know a good place to be going into a recession where there isn't going to be already a lot of vacancy out there.
2: Is that accurate? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, you think about it just from the, the demand standpoint, right? So, um, you know, the couple of things that we like to look at, right, to, to see how the demand for space is, is obviously occupancy or vacancy. We want to look at rental growth. We're going to look at sales growth, whatever. But rental rates, as an example, if you look across retail uh, in Kansas City, so um, neighborhood centers were about 6%, according to CoStar, and are projected, actually, from CoStar's methodology. They are projected to have the highest percent year-over-year rental growth of any of the subcategory of retail, right? So we're seeing this- neighborhood you know, centers. This neighborhood centers. The the neighborhood centers in Kansas retail. City are all neighborhood centers. All neighborhood centers. Wow, yeah, Kansas City, Kansas City projected about four or five and four and a half five percent. Neighborhood centers globe, or nation- nationwide about six percent, and the highest amongst the year the year forward forecasts and Coast six stars. percent rent growth is what they're expecting.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's correct. You, you know, you know, getting back to whether this, you know, how bad is recession going to affect these? And, and I think it's, I mean, intuitively, you know, you just know people are going to keep buying their six pack. They're going to keep getting their haircut. But really the killer, the killer thing that you got to think about here is is price. Price right. is king yeah. when it comes to making money. If you want to make money, it matters how much you pay, right? Mm-hmm. For, for getting in and when you have a cap rate at let's just say eight percent that means cash on cash it's yielding eight percent that is a very low priced asset relative to yep. the income it's producing and you know it's just hard to imagine the only way you lose money if cap rates go up from there and it's a, that's inconceivable you know mm-hmm. i mean you know so it just well, seems like well, price either- is the
0: killer here it's just so attractive because they're just so darn cheap what I, I think so interesting too when you're comparing this to, you know, the big boom and say value add, multifamily, you know, deep, deep value add or repositioning, right? Where it's, you know, no no cash flow or negative cash flow for a period of time. Um, you know, and there's certain times when that risk makes sense, but you're taking a pretty big risk when you're not having cash flow and right. you go into a recession versus having Absolutely. very strong cash flow and when you have that strong cash flow, you have that low basis, you your, your break even occupancy. You know, number goes way down, right? Right. So you can sustain actually a pretty high occupancy and still cash flow, and you know, cash flow is king. Even if values go down a little bit in the near term, because you know, demand from an investment standpoint, it, you know, even decreases further, you still got cash coming in, right? right. And now you're right, cash flowing at fifteen percent, like you're saying. So it's, um, you know, it, it creates a lot of margin and it creates a lot of flexibility when you have when you have that that cash.
2: Yeah. And I also say when it comes to price, right? Another piece that we always like to consider is replacement right. costs, right? For us, it's a huge factor. What would it cost to rebuild this thing? Right. Because if you can get it for a great basis, you know, especially vis-a-vis, you know, whatever the replacement cost is, then it's much more difficult for people to come in and compete with you in a particular That's submarket. market right. That's right. We're talking about buying things, you know, between say 80 to $140 a foot that would cost 200 to $300 a wow. foot. Yeah. And <laughs> it's
1: it really is a no brainer. I mean, you know, to back up the truck on these things, you know, and, and to your to your point, cash flow too, the, the big problem in recession is, you know, you, look, if you build your entire life around surviving a recession, you're going to be poor, okay? You've you got to plan <laughs> on growth, right? So, but you've got to be bulletproof enough that if a recession comes, you can weather it, right? And, you know, to me, the big macroeconomic 800-pound gorilla is inflation and, Inflation is going to continue to raise those rents, and that's going to continue to raise the value of that property. You just have to be able to ride the wave long enough and not, not get blown out because you can't service your debt. That's when people get cream. That's when you overpay, you don't have cash flow, you can't service the debt, and the bank ends up taking the property. As long as you can hold on to the property, you can ride the inflation wave, and you just got to not be shaken out and you you know so i think investors make a mistake if they're building their entire portfolio around this idea let me you know let me let me think about let me build an entire portfolio around a recession yeah. it's like no let's we don't know what's going to happen you know how deep and, and or how shallow it might be we just don't know what we need to do is build a great portfolio at a good right. price that has a lot of growth and that can weather a recession
2: that's absolutely right i mean when it comes to anybody's individual portfolio i mean this is not financial advice, right? But uh, you know, it comes down to a, an allocation scheme decision, right? And so, you know, there are certain property types or strategies that, in a great time, might make fifteen to twenty percent return, but in a bad time, might lose fifteen to twenty percent. And there are others in a bad time might make eight percent, time might make eighteen percent. So, you know, you got to look at it from a risk adjusted basis. My downside's eight, my upside's eighteen. You know, versus my upside's twenty, my downside's negative twenty. There you go. You know, there's a lot there. <laughs> And so there might yeah. the be parts of your portfolio where you want to out towards something that's going to be a little bit riskier to try to drive some additional yield in your overall portfolio, but you want to make sure that you're doing the right blocking and tackling and filling your property with assets that are going to be able to be resilient and provide cash flow throughout the period that maybe some of your other portfolio properties are struggling.
1: Yeah, perfect. And you know, I want to go back to a point you made earlier about you know the property, uh, the property prior property values versus the property market versus the capital market. And there's a huge inefficiency here, right, and this is this is what what creates opportunity, right right You know Warren Buffett said if markets were efficient, I would be broke. right? Mm-hmm. Markets are not efficient, and so anytime there is efficient inefficiencies, that's when you make money and so what's happening so these neighborhood centers they're small, right? Most of these things are you know should I say you know sub five million you know, and even you know three million dollars? Right. So these are super tiny. So the, if you've got a read, you've got a billion dollars to deploy, you've got to buy a thousand of these just to, just to, you know, you know, impact the bottom line slightly. (laughs) It's a whole lot easier to buy, you know, a hundred million dollar apartment complex, class A or whatever, right? And to get those, so, so this is not, this is an asset that is too small for, for, for the large, the big players, but it's perfect for the smaller investors right and and i think it's i mean it's a great consolidation play to be honest so just like mobile home parks same thing those were same class very small not not pricey very mom and pop or in very uh fragmented market i think it's a great opportunity to look for cap rate compression there, you know we don't know when cap rate compression could happen but if they do become institutionalized cap rates are going to go down and if they don't great you just cash flow like crazy forever you know um so it seems like a great investment to play this inefficiency, the capital markets. So we all, we all know, anybody who's tried to borrow money, right? It's easy, it's easy to borrow $10 million. It's really hard to borrow a million dollars. Really, really hard. No one wants to loan a million dollars. No one, right? But $10 million, $100 million, now it's, you're t- now it's easy. So, so again, the markets are just just very inefficient at these, at these, uh, these low low million dollar kind of price points.
2: Yeah, and here's some that I think is interesting. So on Kansas City Retail, you look across the board from 2010 to today, we've gone from 9.2% vacancy to 4.5% vacancy in the market. Wow, So our vacancy is incredibly low. Now over
1: what time period?
2: Since since 2010. And if you look at that same time period, you saw cap rates go from 8 for neighborhood retail centers, 8.2 to 7.6. So hardly any cap rate compression, despite a much better performance, Wow. property type. And if you look at it, what's really interesting is, you know, power centers, malls, et cetera, are all trading at much lower cap rates than neighborhood centers, despite Which the fact that they're performing much worse. And right? and so in spite of the
1: risk, the greater risks.
2: Yep. The riches are in the niches, right? And that's, this is one <laughs> of those where we can find that niche that says, hey, all of the data shows that these are doing really well, but people are underpaying for them. Well, let's go underpay for them as well.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Just really an extraordinary opportunity. You know, there's always there's always a table the, the buffet table that's full, right? There's always tables that are empty. You got to know you got to know what time it is and there's it's always buying season on something, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever is hated and out of favor, that's when you want to be buying. And cash flow is king. I mean even if it, if the market doesn't cap rates don't compress further great. Let's just let's just keep putting the money in our pockets,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think the other point too of this kind of like pre Institutionalization, if you want to call it that, aside from cap rates potentially compressing down the road, it's mostly mom and pop operators, right? What you are saying. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, seven, eight, nine percent cap rates you know, purchasing these assets that are likely being run pretty inefficiently, right? And so, t- talk a little bit at, at the property level, the value add, what you're doing to drive value, because it, it doesn't actually take a whole lot compared to, you know, a big redevelopment project and multifamily or conversion from. You know office to storage or something like that was a big capital outlay. and uh, you know some I would say a, lar- a larger risk taken to achieve higher rents. You know what do we see at the property level when you're driving value, uh, what are some of the strategies there to to make us more efficient and more professionally run?
2: Yeah, I think more than anything, you have to know how to cut a deal, right? And so if you're not you know professionally in the business, making doing these negotiations, understanding the marketplace, et cetera, and you've got a property at a particular basis because you're a mom pa, you put some money in, you did a 1031, whatever. You just aren't cutting deals the way the professional operators are doing. And so what you're doing is you're cutting gross leases. Like we we walk into shopping centers that have gross leases at $10 a foot, meaning they're not paying anything additional over their rent for taxes, insurance, for common area maintenance. When the, market so the, the landlord's paying all those things.
1: Landlord's Correct. paying all that, gotcha. So
2: they might be making mm. net five bucks of food mm. on that tenant, even though the market's 15 to 20 triple net, meaning that tenant's actually paying 20 to 25 bucks. So immediately you have got an opportunity to go in there and double revenue on a particular mm. tenant. And sometimes you have to say, hey, we're going to lose this tenant because they were not a good fit for the shopping center. Striking a deal isn't a good reason to keep them here, right? And so immediately what you can do is go in and cut those deals, you know, find ways to, do that. And how you end up being able to retain those tenants is you do things to make the property better. You you make sure the lighting is better, the asphalt's mm-hmm. better, the concrete's better, paint. I mean, there's simple things to make these things more attractive and to bring them into the 21st century in terms of their makeup that aren't incredibly expensive to the property that add a whole lot of value. And when you add all that value, you make the shopping center more appealing, look safer, uh, and, and more desirable to go in into and, and sometimes easier to park or find like with signage, well, now you're going to drive more sales, right? And so our goal when we own these properties is to make sure that we're putting the property in the best position to drive the most sales for our tenants because the more sales they can get, the more they can pay in rent. And so that's kind of where it's, it's a mutually beneficial relationship for us to make that property look and feel as best as it can so they can be the most successful in their businesses, and then ultimately provide us the right. Because
0: right. ultimately, if you're driving more, more foot traffic, more car traffic to the center, it's worth more. That's driving more revenue to those tenants and driving more revenue to to the owner. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I love too. I think we talked about this in the last mm-hmm. uh, episode we did, but some of these kind of ancillary strategies you can't do this every time. But right, if you have a big parking lot, for example, and you have some extra space, and you can go, you know, carve out. Uh, a land lease or, you know, sell off a parcel and get a scooters, coffee or some kind of small footprint, um, retailer, coffee shop, whatever. I mean, you've done this before on a, on a project, right? And you basically, you know, sold off this piece of land, uh, to uh, another tenant and they, they built, um, kind of a freestanding building and you pretty much were able to recapitalize all the equity in the deal just from selling off that piece. Right. To talk a little bit oh. about some of these kind of unique strategies <laughs> when you're looking for opportunity and, and driving more value.
2: Obviously, there's the easy ones—the rent, and the you know, making sure that you're getting collections on that stuff, on the tax insurance cam. Then you have other things, maybe, maybe a signage, right? So sometimes you can charge for signage. The markets will let you do that. Um, sometimes you can put billboard signage up. Uh, there are other things like that that you can do. But pad side sales is a huge option, or pad side leases. And so, what you're referring to is, you know, we had a project where we went in and had an old. Um, QSR pad site that was really dated with the tenant in it. We were able to negotiate to move that tenant in line. And this is a property we paid two point seven four for, had about 450,000 in equity in the deal. And then once we were able to get that tenant out of that and had a free use, we put a plan together. where We were actually built out a pad site there. Um, but a group came to us and wanted to put a new financial institution on that site, paid us $750,000 for something. Where we had 450 in the whole site, so we're able to take not only our money off the table, but make another free 50 and still own the shopping center. So um, we, we ended up plugging some of that money back into some renovations mm-hmm. and, and taking some off the table, but that's a, a great strategy to be able to use. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. Um, sometimes, depending on where you are and, and if it makes sense, there's ATMs, You know, there's um, you know ice and water, and there's other items that you can think about as how do we make use of what might be dead space or if we're over parked or something like that, how do we... How do we make use of that space <clears> and monetize? You know, I'm thinking about a little strip mall that's
1: in my neighborhood that I've suddenly started going to. And and it was a, kind of a real old dated, I don't know, it's probably, you know, made in the 70s or something. And and they went and added patios. There's a bunch of restaurants and bars there and and patios. They did the parking lot. They added some facade work and it's just really nice. It's appealing, right? And the, during the same, that whole, this whole period, malls have become dead. No one wants to go to, I can't remember the last time I went to a mall, who wants to go to a mall, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, but so, but the neighborhood centers have been able to reinvent themselves. And I don't know how expensive that kind of thing is, but, uh, it's really, I mean, it's just packed now, uh, with these, mm-hmm. you know, nice kind of, you know, uh, you know, I guess hip little restaurants and, you know, outdoor seating. That's just very appealing. Um, you know, t- just talk about that and the kind of the consumer trends and. And are we seeing, you know, these kind of things, you know, neighborhood centers just gain appeal relative to some of the old farm
2: factors? Yeah. I mean, one of one of the biggest things that we're seeing is, you know, there's obviously a trend towards renovation. I mean, a lot of these strip mm. centers were built a long time ago. As I mentioned, when we were talking about buying something for 80 to 140 bucks a foot, vis-a-vis costing 200 something plus to build these things, we're not seeing new building. I mean, we're just not. There's almost no new construction of retail that it's, it's far cheaper to find something that's defunct and redevelop that site than it is to do something. So we're seeing improving supply, you know, or right? So we either see declining or almost no increases in supply. We're seeing improving occupancies down, you know, from nine to four and a half percent, right? So positive demand against or declining supply is really strong. And so where we're seeing people, you know, move from one location to another or find different spots is, you know, access and visibility are huge. The signage is obviously huge. Making sure that you have Hmm. some sort of more of a contemporary architectural design, right? If it looks old and dated, it's just not going to feel something like something that's attractive. But if it looks nice and new, I don't care who you are. I mean, like what I can think about is for anything else, and this is kind of one of my, my philosophies on design. It's like my wife, when she's running around with our kids, where is she going to want to stop? Get a cup of coffee or have an ice cream or do something. <laughs> and it's like, where is she going to feel comfortable and safe? And what does that place need to look like? It's going to make her that's a spot that I should, I should go into. Right. Because my wife is pretty discerning. If it's going to meet her criteria, then it's going to meet a lot of people's criteria and you design for your more specific, you don't design a handle for an average hand, design it for a really weak hand because then people who have weak hands can use it and everybody else can't. And the same thing here, we design for who's going to be our most, you know, discerning clientele and how do we make sure this is a place that they're going to come by making sure that it's well lit, (laughs) safe, that it's clean, um, and that it's easy to get in and out. From there, we look at some additional trends that we're seeing and, and things that we're, we're seeing come up. I mean, drive-thrus are a huge need today. There are fewer drive throughs than we need to support places. And so we're seeing opportunities even in retail strip centers where you can take an end cap, add a drive through with around traffic, and that, that drives huge value. And you might be able to get 20 to 40% more rent in the space if you can accommodate a drive through on wow. that. So that's, That's one thing that we look at if we can accommodate that. Um, But so drive-throughs are are a huge component of what the tenants are demanding. And I'd say as well, I mean, your average tenant is looking for something that's, you know, I would say probably for these shopping centers, two to 4,000 square feet on average is what we're talking about. And so one of the ways that we're able to drive value and make spaces easier is if we have spaces that are 500 square feet, 900 square feet, 1,200 square feet, you know, or they're 10,000 square feet. You gotta find ways to make spaces meet the consumer demand. So we can demise those spaces. We can blow out demising walls, et cetera, to make spaces easier. Um, no matter who you are or, or what you're doing, we find that it's really difficult for people to see what something's going to look like when it's done. So if you can go in there and spend a little bit of that time, energy, effort, and capital to get the end result, you know, you know this group's wanting two thousand feet, you have two one thousand square foot spaces next to each other, blow out the wall so they can see it. You know, put put even a white coat of paint on the wall so they can see what it looks like open, and drop some lighting in there to show it. You have to think about kind of merchandising the space like a retailer does to its clientele. We have to merchandise space to the retailer to make sure that, that space is appealing to them and easy for them to to want to be there.
0: Parker, thanks so much for coming on again and sharing these insights. Uh, definitely something we wanted to kind of let our listeners hear again and just uh, talk talk through what uh, is asset yeah, class. Appreciate all this. Just love lights. the
1: love the space. Love the idea when when there's a lot of areas of, re, uh, of real estate that I'm not excited about. This one just continues to say,
0: "Buy
2: me!" <laughs> Absolutely, we agree. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Parker. Guys, okay. thank you very much.